Welcome to our AJAG PD Pod, the place for discussion, debate, and learning about all things accounting. Our hosts, Ivan Tabak, Jonathan Tucker, are CPAs that have been in practice for more than three decades. Together, they bring varying experience and viewpoints to the table, not to mention a little humor, too. Join us as we talk through current issues and hot topics, tap into expert guest insights, and enjoy the odd walk down AJAG memory lane. Before we begin today's podcast, please note, although the educational material within the podcast has been carefully prepared, none of the persons involved in the preparation of the material accepts any legal responsibility for its contents or for any consequences arising from its use. As well, the podcast material and the references contained therein may reflect laws and practices that are subject to change. Advice regarding a particular fact or situation should always be reviewed by a qualified professional. This podcast is produced and distributed by AJAG Professional Development. For more information about AJAG or any of its offerings, please visit ajag.ca. Hello and welcome to episode three of AJAG's PD Pod. Uh, Today we're discussing trusts and all the new fun regulations and rules and reporting that come along with it this year. Today we have two guests with us, Monica Carinci and Megan Lambert both from uh, Erden Burles. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves and give a little background. Sure, so uh, my name is Monica. I am an associate in our tax group. I primarily poke it, or my primary focus of my practice is in um, tax litigation and dispute resolution. So from CRA audit all the way up to appeals and then to tax court, federal court and federal court of appeal. Uh, but I do assist on the advisory side with issues such as mandatory reporting um, and risk management and that sort of thing. Hey, my name is Megan. I'm also a tax associate at Erden Burles, um, but I primarily focus on estate and trust planning and estate administration. Okay. So do you guys get into any of the compliance area or it's strictly the, the big picture issues? We advise on compliance issues uh, for sure. Um, And often, for example, in the context of compliance, voluntary disclosure issues may come up and that's where we would usually step in, sometimes on the behind the scenes with the accountants up front. Mm -hmm. Uh, With CRA, other times we'll we'll take a more central role. I think that's the same probably. Yeah, it's it's very similar for me. You know, I will do a lot of advising with accountants and financial advisors and whatnot on kind of more compliance issues. hot topic lately with UHT and, you know, trust reporting, all that kind of stuff. So certainly right. a person I practice too. Right. And um, Monica's already presented a number of courses for AJAG, uh, including a course on trust reporting and the related issues. Uh, the first course generated so many questions, we needed to add a part two, uh, where Megan joined in to help and, and answer more questions. Uh, so parts one and two will be available by the time this podcast is released, so you could check out our website to subscribe and order those two courses. So I guess in a you know a big picture, what what are your feelings about the new trust reporting rules? Where are they going with this? What what are they trying to get at? And do you think a lot of the requirements are going to stick, or will they backtrack on them like they did on the UHT? Um. I think it's a a general push that we're seeing with the mandatory disclosure rules, the revamped 
uh, reportable transactions, the new notifiable transactions, uncertain tax treatments, UHT. There's clearly a movement towards more and more information gathering and data collection. Um, the CRA has, over the past few years, been given a lot of money by the government to um, expand their audit powers, but they need the information in order to to initiate those audits. So um, certainly the the end goal here, I think, is to to try and see if there's anything that they can pick up on any trends in the information that's gathered. Um, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that they're picking up um, many issues or many, many benign scenarios um, and the and for clients and for accountants, they're having to deal with this huge compliance burden um, that probably won't lead to the results that they are thinking they might. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. It's certainly not surprising given kind of the trends in terms of information gathering, but I also, in a sense, wouldn't be surprised if things were kind of change a little bit, much like we saw with UHT reporting. Um, you know, once the first year of reporting is over and kind of certain things are kind of dialed back a little bit, but... The lobbying, the screaming and yelling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Right. Um, In our last episode, we talked about sending out questionnaires to clients to help them determine whether or not they need to file. Um, So if you were to come up with a questionnaire yourself, today, or maybe you've done that uh, with clients or provided, uh, what are what specific prompts would you throw out there to to mm-hmm. try and pull this information out of uh, out of clients? Good question. Um, I mean, I think, of course, very broadly, if they have any kind of trust structures in place, um, I think it becomes more difficult with bare trust planning where Sometimes there's no documentation that was provided for that. So it might be a little bit less of kind of a clear understanding of what that would be. Um, so I think, you know, asking certain questions that would be relating to kind of the ownership of their assets, you know, um, one that comes up a lot is having children on joint accounts that people do very commonly for, you know, helping them pay bills, those types of things, um, just alerting them to those kinds of scenarios and maybe asking those questions about ownership and whatnot, but mm-hmm. no, it's anything specific. Yeah, I think for, so maybe just a general question to clients saying, if you have any trust arrangements, please uh, let us, that we don't know about, please let us know. But then also a follow-up question saying that also, just so you know, um, we are referring not only to express trust, but also to uh, bear trust arrangements where, um, the there is a, a divide between legal ownership and beneficial ownership. And again, these are all sort of legalese terms and accounting terms right. that clients aren't going to be familiar with. So I would even provide a, 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 some examples of mm-hmm. common scenarios right. that would be caught and say, if any of these apply to you or if you think they might apply to you, please reach out to us. Right. Um, and then once you have more information, you can make a determination because it's really hard to just, in layman's terms, explain what a bear trust yeah. is. I mean, I guess you could just say, do you have, do you own anything that's not in that's not your yours. name? That's not registered <laughs> yeah. in your name. Did you do a, a deal, a side deal with somebody to buy real estate? Do you own a property um, <clears throat> jointly with someone, but it's in their name, not mm-hmm. in your name. Or And um, the reverse, I think, too. Do you own anything, anything in your name that's not yours? Yes, exactly. Um, like, especially- that's true, because what I just said would put the reporting on 
the other person on the other person, not this one. But yes, you're right. Do do you own anything in your name that doesn't belong to you in any, you know, in full or in parts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's probably the the the, the simplest way to uh, to put it. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right with the joint accounts, especially most clients don't consider that. Yeah, um, it's just a joint account. And one other thing that um, that I've come across, and it came up with the UHT, and now transferring over here, is when, a, say, a parent goes on title of the child's uh, uh, home, first home, uh, for one percent in order to be able to guarantee the mortgage. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's that's a trust. Uh, but I have I did have a couple of clients who insisted that. They own that one percent. So when the property is sold, they will report one percent of the gain, mm -hmm. and um, so we're not filing. Yeah, and that's and that's really that's it. It's the intention finest. of the parties, right? right? That's what I always look to because it can be the case that they own one percent, and it's just the agreement is that it's in trust, and then you have a filing requirement. So it's right. really, you know, I the the prompts that I ask is. You know, is this your account? Is this your money? Your, for example, just a regular joint account is, you know, are you dealing with all these assets yourself or does your son have equal access to everything? And here they say, oh, no, 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 no. It's just there for when I die or when I'm incapacitated and you pay bills. Then in that case, that's kind of OK. Like, yes, you have a filing right. requirement in that case. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the one of the huge issues that that I'm running into as a practitioner is for for a lot of the the trust holding it market investments or not stocks and bonds but mutual funds and etfs in most cases the tax reporting slips aren't coming out until right at the end of march with the filing deadline for the t3 i think it's april 1st or 2nd, second this year so you know it, it, it's inevitable that so many of these returns are going to be filed late just because the the release the the release dates for these slips might be some of them said 26th or 28th which means they won't necessarily get to the client and won't get to me until probably after the filing deadline so it'd be interesting to see what accommodation cra might take with that type of thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's always it's always frustrated me with even just for the t1 reporting with those slips coming out so late I mean, either extend the tax filing date or force the reporters to mm -hmm. issue those slips earlier. Mm -hmm. But it just the the deadlines just don't mesh. And they've already extended the deadline too for bear trusts yeah. uh, to say that they uh, will waive penalties for the first year. So mm -hmm. perhaps as we get closer and closer to the deadline, they'll they might they might. But I know we like, can't plan for like, that. <laughs> right, like they did for the UHT at four o'clock on the deadline day. <laughs> yeah. They extended it. Um, so uh, having having uh, dealt with this issue now for a number of months, I guess it's been about a year, really, since it's really been uh, clear about what mm -hmm. they're looking for. Um, what are the most common scenarios that that you're coming up against? That for people having to report new uh, or deal with the new trust reporting mm -hmm. outside of the standard. I would trust. say there's probably three 
issues with the new rules that are really, uh, or I would put them into three categories. So the first two deal with bear trusts. So the new changes that are going to be, uh, trusts are going to be filing for the first time. So that's the joint accounts, which maybe Megan mm -hmm. can speak a bit more to. Mm -hmm. um, the second is for real estate. Uh, just there's so many common scenarios where you didn't th even know there was a bear trust, uh, but there is. And now there's a reporting obligation. And then the third big uh, scenario or common concern that's coming out is all of this information that's required on the Schedule 15. And there's several sub-issues within that, but um, just determining really what is reasonable efforts that a trustee needs to make in order to provide that information. Um, would you yeah, add agree. anything? Yeah, I mean, even just to speak on that last point, um, but in terms of kind of where I see it the most in my practice is, is definitely bear trust planning. This is kind of a probate planning technique that I implement weekly. Um, we talk about kind of, you know, spouses transferring property, real estate into a uh, bear trust corporation for probate planning purposes, even elderly clients having an adult child added to their bank accounts to kind of ease administration on their death. And also again, for probate planning purposes. So. Now it's something that you have to say, you know, yes, you'll save probate tax, but it's this additional compliance piece that you have um, annually. Mm -hmm. And for many of our clients, you know, they're like, oh, well, I have an accountant that handles all those things anyways, but it's also a matter of them being aware and, you know, we're not always kind of speaking directly with their accountant. So mm -hmm. there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes. So I think sometimes there's a, you know, a mad dash in, I, I expect that to be around tax season now filing all these things and, you know, clients not necessarily advising their accountants that they have put the structure in place. So a lot of that has been coming up for me recently. Right. Yeah, it's it, it'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, certainly add to the tax filing burden. At least the first year will be the worst year right gathering all this new information going forward it's a matter of just verifying whether there were any changes mm -hmm. to beneficiaries were mm -hmm. there new children born uh to their children or grandchildren right picking up um the um issue uh of beneficiaries etc addresses but uh it's certainly making for an interesting tax season this mm -hmm. year so so of the of the issues that that you've come across so far, what would you say uh, is the most obscure one? You you mentioned real estate is the most common, common one you've been dealing with, but what's a really oddball one that you've come across? Yeah, I'm trying to think if anything kind of noteworthy has come up, and and nothing necessarily. I think it's just what I'm seeing very very often is just you know this is a structure we put in place 10, 15 years ago. Kind of what do I do now? I've never done anything until now, so that's coming up a lot. But yeah, the, the same thing with kind of the disaster clause that up until this reporting, clients often treat it as, you know, a throwaway provision to a certain degree. You know, you don't want to think of having to, to think so far down the line in the event that none of your beneficiaries are alive at that time and whatnot. So it's just, you know, it'll go to my cousin who I haven't spoken to in 10 years. And now it's like, right. okay, well, you have to get this information. Or under the terms person. of their will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it just yeah. really goes far down the line. And it's, yeah, I think that'll be tough for yeah. sure. It's interesting. You mentioned somebody who you haven't spoken to because in doing the work for my clients and asking to see um, the trust document, if it exists, 
and then um, where the trust document calls for ultimate disposition based on the uh, usually the main beneficiary's will. So I'm now going to the will and uh, and and asking for information for all these names and, oh, this person we haven't spoken to in 20 <laughs> years and this one, uh, we don't know where they live and so-and-so will never answer the question because they're too private. Um, um, so, and that also goes back to you, to your comment earlier about making best efforts to get the information. And what I'm telling them is, you know, I understand that you don't know this information. Maybe you haven't spoken to them, mm -hmm. but you have to try. Mm -hmm. At least show show me that you've sent an email and document or, those and efforts. documented that you've actually tried to get this, mm -hmm. because it could come back and uh, and bite you if you can't demonstrate that uh, that you've made the effort. Mm -hmm. And and that leads to the next point, saying with all the with with these people being named in the trust and in your wills, maybe it's time to update mm -hmm. these documents that nobody's looked at for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so in one sense, that's the good element that's coming out of all this is forcing people to revisit their estate planning um, and, mm -hmm. and clean it up. It, it also raises a lot of personal concerns too, because some of those individuals probably didn't even know that they were beneficiaries exactly. under that trust. Yep. Um, and it, it raises all these personal issues that I don't think uh, really justify, is really justified in, in relation to what they're gathering. That's true. It could, it, it, that's true. It could, it could create more problems if somebody now finds out you are a beneficiary mm -hmm. of, of a trust. Um, you know, there's always somebody willing to try and make trouble and start a lawsuit mm -hmm. uh, if they're disgruntled. And Another yeah. obscure scenario that I, um, uh, one of our colleagues in our trust and estates group was telling me about is uh, the trust document said that a, a person was a beneficiary if they were in a uh, common law relationship at the time. Um, and that brings into family law concepts and other legal concepts. Mm. Uh, and that's just one example. But Sometimes those terms of the trust, like you have to consider at that point in time if they meet that definition, if they meet that condition. Um, so that's another scenario where it's just adding to compliance costs in terms of ma making that legal analysis. Also for accountants, for example, picking up on that issue that, wait a minute, we need to get some further advice to see if they actually meet this definition. Right. Yeah, some, some of the... the um... Some of the clauses that I've seen in some of the wills that I've been looking at define um, uh, spouse and define child or issue. And you get the adoption issue. You get um, whether the parents were married, and um, and many of them talk about only same sex. Uh, sorry, opposite sex uh, marriages, specifically excluding that. And I wonder if that is that something that could be challenged, or if it's in the will that's. That's it. I look to you because this sure. is yeah. more of your daily practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, generally speaking, you know, we in courts will kind of um, defer to testator intention um, and really what is kind of in the will, um, unless it's against things like public policy and whatnot. But I think that that's a pretty high threshold to kind of challenge that. Um, so something like a spouse or a child. So, for example, if um, a client came to me and wanted to exclude any children, for example, born out of wedlock or something. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think that that is likely something that would amount to something that someone could challenge. Um, you can exclude people from your will. Um, there have been court cases and, you know, forgive me because I haven't learned about them since law school, but there have been some where they have been successfully challenged um, for issues of race and whatnot. So that's certainly, you know, something that doesn't stand in every case. But I think generally speaking, um, something like a spouse um, and excluding certain people for that reason, that would be. It would it would stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so we're talking about obscure scenarios. So I'll I'll give you one that I've come across, which I thought was was interesting because it hits on a number of issues. So I have uh, a client who um, whose father deposited some sh public company shares into um, a dividend reinvestment plan in the US. It was a US public company. These are all Canadian residents, but he worked for the US company. Shares were in a US-based account. Uh, so he deposited shares in trust for the grandchild. And the first one, ha there were two, the first one happened in 1994. Um, client never mentioned this account to me until we started talking about the trusts. So I now have uh, unreported income since 1994, uh, which would have been attributed back to the grandfather up until the child was 18. The grandfather passed away before the child hit 18. The father went on as a trustee. So I haven't even thought really about the attribution for the, the older income and how far back CRA might even look to go. But we now have to file a uh, trust return. But likely I have to go through voluntary disclosure to go back to the year the child turned 18, where the income would have had to be reported by the child, file trust returns and personal tax T1 adjustments through VDP for all years since, I think it was 2012 for the older one. Um, and then we have the 21-year rule that would have hit in, you know, in, in between there. So there's a large capital gain that uh, on which tax will have to be paid. I did the calculation of the ACB, and we're lucky that they didn't meet the foreign reporting requirement. Mm -hmm. The the the, the value went up, but the cost base didn't go up uh, that fast. So at least we got out of that one. But that this I think was the most convoluted one that uh, that I came across, mm -hmm. and it just shows again. Mm -hmm what can come out of the woodwork so client is and one thing to keep in mind with the voluntary too is that there's not necessarily you don't necessarily need to get that done before the filing but how soon are they going to pick up any issues exactly and as soon as they pick up that issue that's it <laughs> that's right because so. the date the trust is established is is right on there mm -hmm. uh on the on the t3 so, so right it'll have to be done very quickly, quickly. <laughs> yeah um, so are there any questions you find you still have or anything about the rules that is still unclear to you other than, you know, the issues we've, we've talked about? And... Mm -hmm. I think if there's anything we haven't spoken about, because I think, you know, we certainly need some more guidance on what we just spoke about, settler, even um, what are reasonable efforts? That's what I was going that, to say. That I'm sure we'll get some guidance on. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm not sure we'll get some guidance on, but hopefully <laughs> we'll get some guidance on. 
Yeah, I think the reasonable efforts question um, in terms of how far you need to go to get information about beneficiary settlers and any reportable entity and trustees, um, I think that's going to be uh, something that it'll take some time to get some guidance on that. Perhaps if these rules stay as they are, maybe there'll be some litigation and that's how we will unfortunately get some guidance. Um, But what is reasonable? I think the best we can tell our clients right now is you need to make the inquiries and you need to document your efforts in making those inquiries and keep records of that. Um, So at least if, if, somewhere down the line, it became a question from CRA, you could say, well, we we made best efforts, uh, reasonable efforts, I should say, to get the information, um, but it just wasn't available. So I think that's that's something that is a big question mark, but um, stay tuned, I guess. (laughs) All right. Now, what do you think about possible inconsistencies between the UHT filing and the T3 filing? So, for example, the the 1% example, when we were scrambling to get UHT returns done, um, all the clients that I have that have that 1%, we filed Mm -hmm. uh, UHT and to claim the exemption as owning it through uh, a trust. But now when we talk about T3 filing, we Mm -hmm. discussed it a little further and we're saying, well, they really own this 1%. It's not in trust. So now we're not filing a T3. I mean, do you foresee CRA matching the two sides and coming after coming after them? And I mean, obviously, the answer is we filed the UHT mm-hmm. in error. But um, do, you, do you, what do you no, think that's, about that? that? That's it's a great a, question. Um, I mean, presumably, it's something, you know, information that they could have access to. Um, whether they will kind of look to that and compare is another question. But I think, you know, if you were filing at the time you were filing because you believed that you had a filing requirement, I don't think that there's, you know, having looked at it further. Um, and it's certainly, I would say, likely better that you filed even though you didn't have to than kind of the other way around, mm-hmm. right? So I don't personally would I wouldn't personally see kind of any issues with that. And, you know, you have a good explanation in that, you know, you've looked at it further and actually this is not the case. And this is kind of this is what the intention of the parties was, um, especially since there was no tax pay UHT payable, I presume, right. if they were all Canadians. Yeah. So in that case, I see kind of no harm in that. But that is an interesting mm-hmm. question that, you know, yeah. being and, consistent across all the reporting. Right. And like so many things, it it'll end up being nothing, but could create a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. interim trying to go back and forth and and argue with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, just picking up on what you said, it's not, uh, there's clearly no negligence you filed right. mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, you had to file. So, or you thought you did at the time. Right. Um, so I, I think that that would be an honest error that you could, you could rely on. And it makes sense if, I mean, the truth is that it, they own that one percent beneficially. There is no trust. Right. So um, I think if you fall back on what the true intention of the parties mm-hmm. uh, was, as Megan was saying, then you can't really go right. wrong. You just have to make sure to put a big note in the file yes. somewhere to pick <laughs> that up when the house is uh, is yeah. sold. Yeah, because I could see it being a bit different, and if it was the opposite circumstance where. 
from the get-go, you took the position, no, they actually do own this 1% as true owners. It's not a trust. And then you go and say that, actually, no, it is held in trust because then you have an inconsistency of intention that it was a trust in the first place. I think that right. becomes a bit more difficult um, to show the intention. Um, so if there's one piece of advice you could leave people with uh, regarding the new rules, what would it be? What are the key takeaways? I think don't panic, <laughs> which is hard to right. do, uh, as we saw in our last. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you're saying that to the accountants. Saying <laughs> that more to the, the accountants than yeah. to the individuals. Um, but also when you're with the individuals as well, I think uh, when you're sending out your, your blast to say or your um, questionnaires to see if anything's caught, uh, do that early so that you have enough time if you get the information, uh, if you get right. people coming to you, which we're already getting people coming to us, um, to that you have enough time to look at everything carefully. Um, and also just to, to don't underestimate the breadth of the rules. It's better to, to follow up on all the questions um, and then make a decision, a principled decision on whether you have a filing obligation and or um, if it's... Uh, with the Schedule 15 and what information needs to be provided, making sure that you have a defensible basis for, for why you're providing information in a certain way, for example. So I think just if you think things through reasonably, um, and that's why I'm saying to leave yourself enough time to do it if you can, uh, you can't yeah. go wrong. These are new rules. So, I mean, the CRA can't really fault uh, filers too much or preparers too much for, for having outstanding questions. It's the, it's the first year, right? Mm -hmm. So, And I think they've, they've been very clear in understanding that it's quite a quite a change too, right? With waiving penalties if, if someone hasn't filed on time for the for the bear trust only. Um, but I think that's, you know, a big concession and kind of recognizing that this is something that will take people a lot of work to kind of dig into structures that were put in place a long time ago, just gather all that information and whatnot. So it's really about kind of examining any for clients themselves, examining about structures that they have in place, but also kind of advisors and looking what they've implemented. Um, a good time to have clients kind of revisit their estate planning as well, simplify where possible. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of bear trust planning that I, I've done and I've, you know, I've seen clients have that they've implemented a long time ago. That's not necessarily kind of worth it to them for this compliance, this annual compliance piece. Right. And, you know, you have, you'll have the UHT filing and then you have this trust reporting and all this stuff going on. So it might be that it's a good time to also kind of revisit and be like, do we need all these in place? And, and that, it may be the case that yes, and it is worth it. Um, but it might be sometimes that, you know, maybe my adult son doesn't need to be on this account. Right. It's a pain. Right. <laughs> Okay, well, this has been a, a great discussion. Thank you both for coming. Uh, that's it for today. Um, for everybody listening, thank you as well. And if you want more on the subject, please visit ajag.ca slash courses to watch Monica and Megan, uh, who are going to be doing uh, another full presentation on this that'll be available through the website. Thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.